Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi. Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. And by Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Browse all the investments at no cost once you're qualified, invest as little as $1,000 per transaction, and diversify your portfolio by visiting realtyshares.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 5th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now let us go to the news, the news of the animals. The animals. Penguins. What are cuter than penguins? I'll tell you what. Little penguins. It's an actual species, the little penguins. And what are cuter than actual species, little penguins? Endangered little penguins. Helpless penguins. The Middle Island of Australia, it's the name of the island, Middle Island little penguin population is truly a little penguin population. They are down to six penguins. Or they were before a farmer named Alan Swampy Marsh trained his sheepdogs to scare off penguin predators. And now the Middle Island little penguins are a middling bit of Middle Island little penguins. They're up to 150 middle penguins, so it's kind of a sesquipenguinial. There's a documentary about this all coming out. It's called Oddball, named after the best penguin defender, a real lockdown penguin defender, the Gordonine or Paul Coffey of the dog world. Okay, moving away from obscure hockey humor, and really is there any other kind, and away from heartening animal news to dispiriting animal news, the saiga. Have you heard the saga of the saiga? It's a type of antelope that lives mostly in Kazakhstan or, for the most part, lived. Half of the saiga population, 60,000, died in just one day, and over 100,000 of them died within the span of 10 days. There were once a quarter million saiga, now they're down to about 100,000. There is this photo, there was this photo in the New York Times of the bodies of the saiga just strewn over the grasslands of the steppe, and it reminded me of a zombie movie, of a post-apocalyptic movie. Death was everywhere. They say a bacteria-induced infestation is to be blamed. Again, zombie movie. Die-offs in general, animal die-offs, are becoming more frequent. Researchers looked at papers that documented this over the last 70 years, and they're going up and up, and some of them are famous. There was the honeybee die-off. There was the bat die-off that was blamed on so-called white nose infection. Starfish washed up in 2014. Sometimes these die-offs remain inexplicable, and of course, all are troubling. And I think that the reason we find them troubling is because our species is, you know, also a species. Finally, to the alpaca. 
not dying except in the marketplace. Alpacas are quite unpopular. We have reached peak alpaca, which is weird because doesn't everyone you know wear an alpaca peacoat or alpaca leg warmers or alpaca cravats? Oh, wait, no one does. That's why it's not weird. So in 2005, female alpacas were being auctioned for $70,000. Males would go for $30,000. By 2014, females were going for a thousand and males for two hundred dollars which actually exactly reflects the drop in value of alpaca beanie babies as well there is no truth that marissa mayer has been called in to cull the herd and to end the practice of allowing all the alpacas to work from home because alpacas really don't work i have seen the ledger trust me this whole alpaca thing it's just not working on the show today i rap i spit mad rhymes Thank you, Dr. Carson, for the inspiration. And we will reconvene the Vexillology Corner for a frank discussion of flag news. But first, a new feature from a guest we've had on before. Mary Lane writes about art, visual art. This is a podcast, audio podcast. And to smooth whatever inherent tension might arise from this pairing, we have chosen a topic that is sure to captivate all, prostitutes. Enjoy. I shall now start with a quote from Gustave Flaubert. As regular just listeners know, most of my intros are quotes by Gustave Flaubert. For me, the finest thing about Paris is the boulevards when the gas lamps shine and mirrors and knives clatter on marble tabletops. I stroll there at my ease in a cloud of cigar smoke, looking right through the women passing by. This is where prostitution lays out its wares and where eyes sparkle. The quote is attached to a show going on now at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Hooker's It's art about hookers, and it's really important. It's a really important subject in the world of art. So joining me now is Mary Lane, the chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal, who's been on the show talking about actually the subject of her uh, upcoming book. It's a book about Hitler and art, and she's writing it for public affairs. Now we're going to talk about one of the big shows going on in Europe. Hello, Mary. Hello. So Flaubert, I mean, there were a lot of motivations for why different artists painted prostitutes, but was a big motivation just that they were available as models? Well, partially, but typically actually up until about the 1850s, they would use prostitutes as models, but they wouldn't paint them as prostitutes. So they would paint them as Greek goddesses or historical figures. And that was actually seen as, you know, a more socially acceptable way of painting them. But what was interesting and that this show really highlights is that Paris in 1850 was a population of one million people, but it was almost double that in just 20 years by 1870. And, you know, adding to that also, and it's a bit of an unexpected twist, because when I think Darwin, I don't usually think hookers. But surprise, surprise, uh, in 1859, Darwin came out with his Origin of the Species, which was then translated in 1862 to French. And, you know, combined with this population boom in Paris, and there was an ease of travel. So there were a lot of men coming to Paris to party, much the way they do now come to, you know, Berlin in, you know, the millennial generation. People started seeing hookers all over the place. And so, you know, it was really a time when you could paint them on the streets. And then also the police got involved and told them it was okay for them to open their own brothels as long as they kept it sort of subtle. So you had all this boom coming out and you had people kind of openly talking about prostitutes because, you know, they read Darwin and thought, okay, you know, it's possible that maybe prostitutes are sort of a degenerate form of human beings. So they started seeing them as, you know, this kind of 
sort of deformed strain of humans and talking about that in this very eugenics type of way. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't know as the layman, many of these pictures, if they weren't labeled, this is a show about prostitutes, I wouldn't know for the most part that I was looking at a prostitute versus a lady of the 19th century. Sure, Toulouse-Lautrec, the girls from the Moulin Rouge, they're dancing the can-can. But back then it was pretty clear and therefore pretty shocking that art patrons were being asked to look at prostitutes? In some cases, yes. But I think that actually what was so disturbing back then was that it was a really annoying time for women, actually, because on the one hand, it was becoming more acceptable for women to go to cafes and sit there alone and have a bit of independence. But then on the other hand, that that ended up backfiring once the prostitution boom happened, because how were you supposed to know if a woman was sitting alone at a cafe because she was a hooker or because she just wanted to read the newspaper? And I mean, no acceptable woman would go unaccompanied to a cafe. Well, I think actually, I mean, this was a time when women were starting to sort of try and maybe do that. So, you know, you look at a painting like it it just kind of engendered this whole paranoia there where you have a painting like Absinthe by Edgar Degas. And, you know, this this woman is sort of sidled up to this man and she's sitting next to him and her drink is on another table. And so only after looking at it and reading social cues, you're like, aha, it's a hooker. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it ends up kind of pushing the blame onto women in many ways because, you know, you look at a painting like Renoir's The Umbrellas, which I, you know, loved as a child because it's got this cute little girl standing in the corner at the right. But then you notice in the left, there's this guy hitting on this woman. And, you know, then if you look a bit further, that cute little girl in the corner is actually being sheltered by, you know, an older looking sibling. And so it's very much sort of, is that girl being hit on or is she asking for it? It ended up bringing a lot of uncomfortable questions into play. There are some cases where it's really obvious that these are hookers. Um, But then in other cases, you know, you have artists like, say, Renoir, who were known for painting hookers, who were then painting some guy hitting on some girl. So that's actually what made people really uncomfortable was the paintings that were very ambiguous. Do some of the artists strike you as pretty leering? And do some of the artists strike you as, you know, documentarians holding up a mirror? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Degas is a classic example of the more leering type. So it's really depressing, actually. And I wish, I'm glad I didn't know this as a kid, but, you know, as a kid, every girl wants to be a ballerina. And you see all of Degas' famous paintings of ballerinas. But what you'll notice in a lot of the corners of the paintings, if you go back and look at them, are these men, these fat men in tuxes, you know, sitting on chairs, often straddling the chairs and looking at these prepubescent girls. And these were actually season ticket holders. And You know, nowadays, if you're a season ticket holder to the New York City Ballet, you get invited to, like, a nice gala dinner, and it's very classy and everything. But back then, they were told that they could come in Paris backstage and just kind of pick one of these girls. And they were all very, very, very underage. And so it's this very, you know, a lot of Degas' paintings are from this sort of leering old man perspective at these prepubescent girls. So a lot of these paintings either... You're, you're probably in our listeners evoking some specifically, or we know the kind that you're talking about. You know, you mentioned Absinthe and Plum by Manet. That's another famous one. But there's a part of this show, and in fact, on the materials online, it even says some of this show might be inappropriate for children, which is pretty stark and tries to be a little more confrontational than some of the beautiful pictures you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I think, well, a lot of those are um, photographs, actually. So, you know, the advent of photography in the late 1800s 
had a lot of people experimenting with it in brothels. So even for, I mean, if a French person is telling you something is sexually graphic, it really is given that they wanted <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey to be seen by people even younger. But they had, a, you know, a lot of people would take their cameras to these brothels and, you know, they were mostly anonymous. That's why you haven't heard of them because they haven't really been written about in an academic sense. But, you know, the ones I'm looking at here, you've got topless girls drinking beer, making out with two guys at once. Like, it's very, you know, they, as soon as the camera was invented, people were experimenting with pornography and sex photography. So, you know, that's a lot of the kind of more just explicit pieces were actually, you know, photographs. I mean, the show is called Splendor and Misery, and I wonder if that's the uh, exhibitors trying to have it both ways, like putting forth these pictures that uh, are great art and that we appreciate now, but of course the people who are probably largely unpaid, uh, the models of 150 years ago, for years and years, just the splendor part of it has been embraced. So now if you put it on and you want to be accepted in good company, you have to acknowledge the misery. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the really big reasons that prostitution has, you know, was accepted at the time was because there was a very tiny group of high-class escorts who were incredibly educated and, you know, very Machiavellian and made their way into this job. And many of them, you know, genuinely enjoyed it. But the far greater number of women who were in, you know, this type of work, they didn't have a choice. And they, you know, were growing up in a Paris that had just completely boomed. They had no sort of safety net to help them out. And so they were very much forced into prostitution, often as children. Mary Lane, she covers art for the Wall Street Journal. She talks about pictures on the radio, or at least on our podcast. And the name of the show we were talking about is Splendor and Misery, Pictures of Prostitution in France, 1850 to 1910. It's at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. You know, it's been a while since we've convened a vexillology corner, but it is high time, I assure you. Our interest in flagging is not flagging. So here now is Ted Kay. He's a former editor of Raven. That's a journal of vexillology. And in fact, he's a former official with NAVA North American Vexillological Association. Hello, Ted. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Ted, you recently, relatively recently, got back from Fiji. What were you doing in Fiji? I was asked to be the technical advisor to the National Flag Committee of Fiji as Fiji explores 
new designs for its national flag. That is so cool. Now, the old national flag has the Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner and is a nice shade of blue. What else ca- What else characterizes that, it? That's correct. That is the current flag, which was adopted in 1970 upon independence. It's got a very distinctive medium-light blue background that they call Fiji blue. It's got the standard colonial British pattern of a Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner and a badge in the uh, center of the fly, which is the central part of the coat of arms of Fiji. And so what didn't they like about it? They want to get out of the yoke of colonialism? Oh, that's certainly part of it. Uh, The prime minister announced it was time to cast off a, a colonial relic and create a flag that represented all of Fiji moving forward into the future. Now, I know you wrote Good Flag, Bad Flag, and that's why they tapped you for your expertise, but let's talk Good Process, Bad Process. I know New Zealand, which we're going to talk about in a second, there was a referendum. So how much should the public be involved? How much should it be a uh, committee of wise people? What was Fiji's process like, and what's the best practice of flag design? Fiji and New Zealand are both engaging in a very similar process with two significant differences. The similarities are both countries announced flag change led by their prime ministers. They both called for the public to submit flag designs. In Fiji's case, 2,000 designs came in. In New Zealand's case, about 10,000 designs. The significant difference, though, is that New Zealand is putting the flag decision process in the hands of the people in a referendum, in a two-step referendum. And Fiji is doing it the traditional way where the people are involved in proposing designs, but the government will choose the design. I polled my colleagues at the International Congress of Flag Studies last month in Sydney, and none of us could remember a time where a national flag was chosen by referendum. So this is a first in New Zealand. So could you describe a couple of the uh, Fiji contenders or maybe your favorite Fiji flag and maybe your favorite New Zealand flag? Because of my role in Fiji, I will not tell you what my favorite of the Fiji flags are, but I will describe what the five finalists in Fiji had on them. They were very simple flags, and the common theme on all of them is the background color, Fiji blue. The committee actually set for the first time this color specification for the background of Fiji's flag. Currently, there's no specification, and the shade of blue varies widely. But the committee chose Pantone Process Blue as the defined color Fiji blue. And that's important because it's a link to the current flag, and blue is mentioned in the national anthem. The national anthem has the phrase, Our Noble Banner Blue. So it's very important to retain that color. Although you could change the spelling to B-L-E-W and still have it scan. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. You can try to sell that in Fiji. Uh, But meanwhile, the other colors used were a dark blue, white, and yellow. And the, the meaning of the yellow was for the sun and warmth and energy, and the meaning of the dark blue was usually to represent the ocean. Uh, there were no greens, no reds, no blacks on the, the flags. It was two shades of blue, yellow, and white. It's a very, very consistent ideas from the committee. And it used simple geometric shapes, triangles, stars, portions of, of the sun or a complete sun, and 
came up with contenders that all of which would be stunning national flags. And the new, some of the great New Zealand ideas center around their uh, piece of vegetation. That's right. The silver fern has been used to represent New Zealand for more than a hundred years, back to the Boer War at least, to represent the country in the same way that the maple leaf has represented Canada. It's on war graves from World War One. It's a major symbol of uh, uh, sporting teams, and it pervades uh, logos in New Zealand. I had my eye out in New Zealand, having been there last month, to see how the silver fern were used. And the silver ferns were used all over the country, and uh, they appear on most of the proposed flags. The New Zealand process narrowed it down to the final four, and all of them had a fern of one form or another on them. Three had a silver fern, and one had the kordu, which is the fern frond as it, as it grows, a, a spiral on it. After they announced those four finalists, there was a social media campaign to add one more to the mix, the flag called the Red Peak, which is a stark geometric flag with a red triangle on a white triangle with a black and blue triangle in the uh, upper left and right corners of the flag. And so those five are the are the finalists in New Zealand. Do you think, by the way, that the uh, fern constituency will fight among themselves and that it gives an unfair advantage to the Red Peak? No, I, I believe the Red Peak is so different that it will have a very narrow following. And the flag that's got a, a white frond on a black background or a black frond on a back, white background, depending on how you look at it, was immediately derided as the monkey butt flag. Mm because it looks like the hind end of a monkey with its tail hanging down. And uh, with that, I think that sinks the chances of that flag. It's too bad, because so I, I, want it, a, I want a black and white flag on the national scene, not just ISIS or the Jolly Roger. One of, one of my colleagues, with whom I disagree, uh, as we were being interviewed by New Zealand television, I was trying to be very polite. He just lit into the black and white flag, saying black and white is for ISIS and pirates. Ugh. Well, I don't know if you've seen any polling, but uh, that's my candidate. Well, I, I had given an interview in the New Zealand media saying that I believed that if New Zealand went with a white fern on a black background, its flag would be flying long after ISIS was in the ash bin of history. Ted Kay, he is a former editor of Raven. He is uh, our friend in the Vexillology Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Mike, for your interest in flags. This is great that you're sharing all this with your listeners. If you want to diversify your portfolio, I point you to Realty Shares at realtyshares.com slash gist. Realty Shares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows you, if you are an accredited investor, to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Thousands of investors use the platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. So you can browse, you can invest, it'll only take minutes, and you can do it all from your computer. Go to realtyshares.com slash gist to create your free account today. And now the spiel, MCBC. Well, Ben Carson has released a radio ad. Maybe you've heard it already. It is a game changer. 
been Carson 2016. And support Ben Carson for our next president and be awesome. America became a great nation early on, not because it was flooded with politicians, but because it was flooded with people who understood the value of personal responsibility, hard work, creativity, innovation, and that's what will get us on the right track now. I'm very hopeful that I'm not the only one who's willing to pick up the baton of freedom. Because freedom is not free. I'll read ABC's description of what's going on here. The ad uses rapper Aspiring Mogul and is interspersed with portions of Carson's stump speech. It is specifically targeting young black voters. Wait, have you heard it? That just targets ears and hearts and toes prone to a tap-in targets young black voters. That's like saying Drake targets young black listeners. No, he doesn't. He targets everybody, all listeners. Why why would it only target young black voters? Ever notice who likes hip hop? It's young people. It's older people. It's black people. It's white people. It's likely Republican voters. Oh, wait, there's why. That's the one group of people who's not usually listening to hip hop. So I thought I'd help Ben Carson out to flesh out his bio a little bit in this ad. The ad's great, Maybe it's a little vague, so I thought I'd fill in some more verses. I really couldn't help myself. Here we go. I've been spitting mad rhymes. Ben Carson's the name. I think the pyramids were meant to store grain. My flow is supple. My tone's sagacious. I separated twins who were Capriopagus. Capriopagus means joined at the skull. On evolutions and vaccine, I'm not 100% sold. I think the Earth is like 80 years old? I don't really know that estimate is loose, though I do think gay is something you choose. I leave the pundit stunned and the ladies writhing. Some like taxes, I like tithing. This ain't no fairy tale, this ain't no brothers grim. I can be the president, I ain't Muslim. I mean, obviously so effective that I think some of the other candidates need help. And of course, who needs help the most of all? Well, you guessed it. Piggybacking on the popularity of that rhyme with nothing to lose is another prominent Republican. Here we go. You know who I am. My name's Jeb Bush. My campaign is doing lousy, but my fantasy team has Rob Gronkowski. I'm not like Trump or Carson or someone wacky, but I'm only five points higher than George Pataki. I got a red logo with an exclamation. That's an exclamation. Here's an explanation. ISIS and my brother, there's no correlation. So the base hates my stance on immigration. Ignores my plans to address taxation. In the last debate, there was bad moderation. But Rubio won despite perspiration. How'd I get into this dire situation? I don't say a person is a corporation. But my voice doesn't offer much modulation. Trump says I suffer from perturbation. He's a buffoon. What's the fascination? I'm losing votes, I'm losing funds, I'm losing motivation. Jeb can fix it, not a rousing declaration. More the slogan on an Exxon filling station. All right, before we go full capital steps, I'm out of here. So that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi invests in alpaca Christmas ornaments, alpaca luncheon meat, and even an alpaca wrapper, alpaca whack of flame. Andy Bowers is the GIST's executive producer. If you listen to Podcast One, he's calling you a loser. 
No, he's not. Just here on The Gist, we've been attempting to foment an East Coast, West Coast podcast beef for years now. It's not taking. But did you hear what Stone Cold Steve Austin has been saying about Ezra Klein of the Weeds? I'm just saying is all. Much love. Um peru de peru du peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>